0: section 34 of the life of samuel johnson volume three this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by alan brown the life of samuel johnson volume three by james boswell section 34 boswell THE HOPE THAT WE SHALL SEE OUR DEPARTED FRIENDS AGAIN MUST SUPPORT THE MIND. JOHNSON WHY, YES, SIR. BOSWELL THERE IS A STRANGE UNWILLINGNESS TO PART WITH LIFE, INDEPENDENT OF SERIOUS FEARS AS TO FUTURITY. A REVEREND FRIEND OF OURS, NAMING HIM, TELLS ME THAT HE FEELS AN UNEASINESS AT THE THOUGHTS OF LEAVING HIS HOUSE, HIS STUDY, HIS BOOKS. JOHNSON this is foolish. In footnote, no doubt, Percy. In the footnote, a man need not be uneasy on these grounds, for as he will retain his consciousness, he may say with the philosopher, "Omnia meamecum porto." Boswell. True, sir, we may carry our books in our heads, but still there is something painful in the thought of leaving for ever what has given us pleasure. I remember, many years ago, when my imagination was warm, and I happened to be in a melancholy mood. It distressed me to think of going into a state of being in which Shakespeare's poetry did not exist. A lady whom I then much admired, a very amiable woman, humored my fancy, and relieved me by saying, the first thing you will meet in the other world will be an elegant copy of Shakespeare's works presented to you. Dr. Johnson smiled benignantly at this, and did not appear to disapprove of the notion. We went to St. Clement's Church again in the afternoon, and then returned and drank tea and coffee in Mrs. William's room, Mrs. Desmoulins doing the honor of the tea-table. I observed that he would not even look at a proof-sheet of his life of Waller on Good Friday. Footnote. JOHNSON RECORDED OF THIS DAY, WE sat TILL THE TIME OF WORSHIP IN THE AFTERNOON, AND THEN CAME AGAIN LATE, AT THE PSALMS. NOT EASILY, I THINK, HEARING THE SERMON, OR NOT BEING ATTENTIVE, I FELL ASLEEP. END OF FOOTNOTE. MR. ALLEN, THE PRINTER, BROUGHT A BOOK ON AGRICULTURE, WHICH WAS PRINTED AND WAS SOON TO BE PUBLISHED. IT WAS A VERY STRANGE PERFORMANCE. Author having mixed in it his own thoughts upon various topics, along with his remarks on ploughing, sowing, and other farming operations. He seemed to be an absurd profane fellow, and had introduced in his book many sneers at religion, with equal ignorance and conceit. Dr. Johnson permitted me to read some passages aloud. One was that he resolved to work on Sunday, and did work, but he owned He felt some weak compunction, and he had this very curious reflection. I was born in the wilds of Christianity, and the briars and thorns still hang about me. Dr. Johnson could not help, laughing at this ridiculous image, yet was very angry at the fellow's impiety. However, said he, the reviewers will make him hang himself. He, however, observed that formerly there might have been a dispensation obtained for working on Sunday in the time of harvest. Footnote. It was only in haytime and harvest that Marshall approved of Sunday work. He had seen in the wet harvest of 1775 so much corn wasted that he was ambitious to set the patriotic example of Sunday labor. One Sunday he promised every man who would work two shillings as much roast beef and plum pudding as he would eat With as much ale as it might be fit for him to drink, nine men and three boys came. In a note in the edition of 1799, he says, The author has been informed that an old law exists, mentioned by Dugdale, which tolerates husbandmen in working on Sundays in harvest, and that, in proof thereof, a gentleman in the North has uniformly carried one load every year on a Sunday. He adds, January 1799, the particulars of this note were furnished by the late Dr. Samuel Johnson, at whose request some considerable part of what was originally written and printed on this subject was cancelled. That which was published, and which is now offered again to the public, is, in effect, what Dr. Johnson approved, or, let me put it, in the most cautious terms, that of which Dr. Johnson did not disapprove. End of footnote. Indeed, in ritual observances, were all the ministers of religion what they should be and what many of them are, such a power might be wisely and safely lodged with the church. On Saturday, April 14th, I drank tea with him. He praised the late Mr. Buncombe of Canterbury as a pleasing man. Footnote. William Duncombe, Esquire. He married the sister of John Hughes, the poet, was the author of two tragedies and other ingenious productions. He died, twenty sixth February 1769, aged 79. Malone. In his life of Hughes, Johnson says, an account of Hughes is prefixed to his work by his relation, the late Mr. Duncombe, a man whose blameless elegance deserved the same respect. End of footnote. He used to come to me. I did not seek much after him. Indeed, I never sought much after anybody. Boswell. Lord Orrery, I suppose? Johnson. No, sir, I never went to him but when he sent for me. Boswell. Richardson. Johnson. Yes, sir, but I sought after George Salmanazar the most. I used to go and sit with him at an ale-house in the city. I am happy to mention another instance which I discovered of his seeking after a man of merit soon after the honourable danes barrington had published his excellent observations on the statutes johnson waited on that worthy and learned gentleman and having told him his name courteously said i have read your book sir with great pleasure and wished to be better known to you thus began an acquaintance which was continued with mutual regard as long as johnson lived talking of a recent seditious delinquent footnote. No doubt, Parson Home, better known as Home Took, who was at this time in prison. He had signed an advertisement issued by the Constitutional Society asking for a subscription for the relief of widows, etc., of our beloved American fellow subjects, who had been inhumanly murdered by the King's troops at Lexington and Concord for this very gross libel he had in the previous November been sentenced to a fine of two hundred pounds and a year's imprisonment. End of footnote. He said, They should set him in the pillory, that he may be punished in a way that would disgrace him. I observed that the pillory does not always disgrace, and I mentioned an instance of a gentleman who thought I was not dishonored by it. Footnote. Mr. Croker's conjecture. That dr shabir was the gentleman is supported by the favourable way in which boswell speaks of shabir as that gentleman and calls him a respectable name in literature shabir on november twenty eighth seventeen fifty eight was sentenced by lord mansfield to stand in the pillory to be confined for three years and to give security for his good behaviour for seven years for a libelous pamphlet entitled A Sixth Letter to the People of England. On February seventh, seventeen fifty-nine, the under-sheriff of Middlesex was found guilty of a contempt of court in having suffered Shebier to stand upon the pillory only and not in it. Before the seven years had run out, Shebier was pensioned. Smollett, in the preface to Humphrey Clinker, represents the publisher of that novel, is writing to the imaginary author. If you should be sentenced to the pillory, your fortune is made. As times go, that's a sure step to honor and preferment. I shall think myself happy if I can lend you a lift. See also in the same book Mr. Bramble's letter of June 2nd. End of footnote. Johnson. ay, but he was, sir. He could not mouth and strut as he used to do. After having been there, people are not willing to ask a man to, to their tables who has stood in the pillory, the gentleman who had dined with us at Dr. Percy's came in. Footnote. Why Boswell mentions this gentleman at all, seeing that nothing that he says is reported is not clear. Perhaps he gave occasion to Johnson's attack on the Americans. It is curious also why both here And in the account given of Dr. Percy's dinner, his name is not mentioned. In the presence of this unknown gentleman, Johnson violently attacked first Percy and next Boswell. End of footnote. Johnson attacked the Americans with intemperate vehemence of abuse. I said something in their favor and added that I was always sorry when he talked on that subject. This, it seems, exasperated him, though he said nothing at the time. THE CLOUD WAS CHARGED WITH sulphurous VAPOR, WHICH WAS AFTERWARDS TO BURST IN THUNDER. WE TALKED OF A GENTLEMAN WHO WAS RUNNING OUT HIS FORTUNE IN LONDON, AND I SAID, WE MUST GET HIM OUT OF IT. ALL HIS FRIENDS MUST QUARREL WITH HIM, AND THAT WILL SOON DRIVE HIM AWAY. FOOTNOTE. MR. LANGTON, NO DOUBT. HE HAD PAID JOHNSON A VISIT THAT MORNING. END OF FOOTNOTE. JOHNSON. NAY, SIR, WE'LL SEND YOU TO HIM. If your company does not drive a man out of his house, nothing will. This was a horrible shock, for which there was no visible cause. I afterwards asked him why he had said so harsh a thing. Johnson, because, sir, you made me angry about the Americans. Boswell, but why did you not take your revenge directly? Johnson, smiling, because, sir, I had nothing ready. A man cannot strike till he has his weapons. This was a candid and pleasant confession. He shewed me to-night, his drawing-room, very genteelly fitted up, and said, Mrs. Thrale sneered when I talked of my having asked you and your lady to live at my house. I was obliged to tell her that you would be in as respectable a situation in my house as in hers. Sir, the insolence of wealth will creep out. Boswell. She has a little both of the insolence of wealth and the conceit of parts. Johnson. The insolence of wealth is a wretched thing, but the conceit of parts has some foundation. To be sure, it should not be. But who is without it? Boswell. Yourself, sir? Johnson. Why, I play no tricks. I lay no traps. Boswell. No, sir. You are six feet high, and you only do not stoop. We talked of the numbers of people that sometimes have composed the household of great families. I mentioned that there were a hundred in the family of the present Earl of Eglintown's father. Dr. Johnson, seeming to doubt it, I began to enumerate. Let us see, my lord. And my lady, too? Johnson. Nay, sir, if you are to count by twos, you may be long enough. Boswell. Well, but now i add two sons and seven daughters and a servant for each that will make twenty so we have the fifth part already johnson very true you get it twenty pretty readily but you will not so easily get further on we grow to five feet pretty readily but it's not so easy to grow to seven on sunday april nineteenth being easter day after the solemnities of the festival in saint paul's church I visited him, but could not stay to dinner. I expressed a wish to have the arguments for Christianity always in readiness, that my religious faith might be as firm and clear as any proposition whatever, so that I need not be under the least uneasiness when it should be attacked. Johnson, Sir, you cannot answer all objections. You have demonstration for a first cause. You see, he must be good as well as powerful because there is nothing to make him otherwise, and goodness of itself is preferable. Yet you have against this what is very certain, the unhappiness of human life. This, however, gives us reason to hope for a future state of compensation, that there may be a perfect system. But of that we are not sure, till we had a positive revelation. I told him that his Rasselas had often made me unhappy, for it represented the misery of human life so well, and so convincingly, to a thinking mind, that if at any time the impression wore off, and I felt myself easy, I began to suspect some delusion. On Monday, April 20th, I found him at home in the morning. Footnote. On this day, Johnson recorded in his review of the past year, my nights have been commonly not only restless, but painful and fatiguing. He adds, I have written a little of the lives of the poets, I think with all my usual vigor. This year, the 28th of March, passed away without memorial. Poor Teddy. Whatever were our faults and failings, we loved each other. I did not forget thee yesterday. Couldst thou have lived? End of footnote. We talked of a gentleman we apprehended was gradually involving his circumstances by bad management footnote mr langton the footnote johnson wasting a fortune his evaporation by a thousand imperceptible means if it were a stream they'd stop it you must speak to him it is really miserable were he a gamester it could be said he had hopes of winning were he a bankrupt in trade he might have grown rich but he has neither spirit to spend nor resolution to spare he does not spend fast enough to have pleasure from it he has the crime of prodigality and the wretchedness of parsimony if a man is killed in a duel he is killed as many a one has been killed but it is a sad thing for a man to lie down and to die to bleed to death because he has not fortitude enough to sear the wound or even to stitch it up. I cannot but pause a moment to admire the fecundity of fancy and choice of language which in this instance, and indeed on almost all occasions, he displayed. It was well observed by Dr. Percy, now Bishop of Dromore, the conversation of Johnson is strong and clear and may be compared to an antique statue where every vein and muscle is distinct and bold. Ordinary conversation resembles an inferior caste. On Saturday, April 25th, I dined with him at Sir Joshua Reynolds, with the learned Dr. Musgrave, Councillor Leland of Ireland, son to the historian, Mrs. Cholmondoli, and some more ladies. Footnote malone was told by baretti that dr james picked up on a stall a book of greek hymns he brought it to johnson who ran his eyes over the pages and returned it a year or two afterwards he died at sir joshua reynolds with dr musgrave the editor of euripides musgrave made a great parade of his greek learning and among other less known writers mentioned these hymns which he thought none of the company were acquainted with and extolled them highly Johnson said the first of them was indeed very fine, and immediately repeated it. It consisted of ten or twelve lines. End of footnote. The project, a new poem, was read to the company by Dr. Musgrave. Footnote. By Richard Tickle, the grandson of Addison's friend. End of footnote. Johnson. Sir, it has no power, were it not for the well-known names with which it is filled, It would be nothing. The names carry the poet, not the poet, the names, Musgrave. A temporary poem always entertains us. Johnson, so does an account of the criminals hanged yesterday entertain us. He proceeded. Demosthenes Taylor, as he was called, that is, the editor of Demosthenes, was the most silent man, the merest statue of a man that I have ever seen. I once dined in company with him, and all he said during the whole time was no more than Richard. How a man should say only Richard, it is not easy to imagine. But it was thus. Dr. Douglas was talking of Dr. Zachary Gray and describing to him something that was written by Dr. Richard Gray. So to correct him, Taylor said, imitating his affected sententious emphasis and nod, Richard, Mrs. Cholmondeley, in a high flow of spirits, exhibited some lively sallies of hyperbolical compliment to Johnson, with whom she had been long acquainted, and was very easy. Footnote. She was the younger sister of Peg Woffington. Johnson described her as a very airy lady. Murphy says that Johnson, sitting at a table with her, took hold of her hand in the middle of dinner and held it close to his eye wondering at the delicacy and the whiteness, till, with a smile, she asked, Will he give it to me again, when he is done with it? He told Miss Burney that Mrs. Cholmondeley was the first person who publicly praised and recommended Evelina among the wits. Miss Burney wrote in 1778, Mrs. Cholmondeley has been praising Evelina. My father said I could not have had a greater compliment than making two such women my friends as Mrs. Thrale and Mrs. Cholmondeley, for they were severe and knowing, and afraid of praising, a tort et a travers, as their opinions are liable to be quoted. To Mrs. Cholmondeley, Goldsmith, just before his death, showed a copy and manuscript of his retaliation. No one else, it should seem, but Burke had seen it. End of footnote. He was quick in catching the manner of the moment and answered her somewhat in the style of the hero of a romance. Madam, you crown me with unfading laurels. I happened, I know not how, to say that a pamphlet meant a prose piece. Johnson, no, sir, a few sheets of poetry unbound or a pamphlet as much as a few sheets of prose. Footnote, Dr. Johnson is supported by the usage of preceding writers so in musorum deliciae the writer is speaking of suckling's play entitled aglaura printed in folio this great voluminous pamphlet may be said to be like one that hath more hair than head malone addison says that the most minute pocket author hath beneath him the writers of all pamphlets or works that are only stitched as for a pamphleteer he takes place of none but of the authors of single sheets. The inferiority of a pamphlet is shown in Johnson's works. Johnson would not allow the word derange to be an English word. Sir, said a gentleman who had some pretensions to literature, I have seen it in a book. Not in a bound book, said Johnson. Disarrange is the word we ought to use instead of it. In his dictionary he gives neither derange nor disarrange. Dr. Franklin, who had been a printer and was likely to use the term correctly, writing in 1785, mentions the artifices made use of to puff up a paper of verses into a pamphlet. End of footnote. Musgrave. A pamphlet may be understood to mean a poetical piece in Westminster Hall, that is, In formal language, but in common language it is understood to mean prose, Johnson, and here was one of the many instances of his knowing clearly and telling exactly how a thing is. A pamphlet is understood in common language to mean prose only from this, that there is so much more prose written than poetry, as when we say a book, prose is understood for the same reason though a book may as well be in poetry as in prose. We understand what is most general, and we name what is less frequent. We talked of a lady's verses on Ireland. Miss Reynolds. Have you seen them, sir? Johnson. No, madam. I have seen a translation from Horace by one of her daughters. She showed it me. Miss Reynolds. And how was it, sir? Johnson. Why, very well, for a young miss's verses that is to say, compared with excellence, nothing, but very well for the person who wrote them. I am vexed at being shown verses in that manner. Miss Reynolds, but if they should be good, why not give them hearty praise? Johnson, why, madam, because I have not then got the better of my bad humor from having been shown them? You must consider, madam, beforehand they may be bad as well as good, Nobody has a right to put another under such a difficulty that he must either hurt the person by telling the truth or hurt himself by telling what is not true. Boswell. A man often shews his writing to people of eminence to obtain from them either from their good nature or from their not being able to tell the truth firmly a commendation of which he may afterwards avail himself. Johnson. Very true, sir. Therefore the man who is asked by an author... What he thinks of his work is put to the torture, and is not obliged to speak the truth, so that what he says is not considered as his opinion. Yet he has said it, and cannot retract it. And this author, when mankind are hunting him with a canister at his tail, can say, I would not have published, had not Johnson, or Reynolds, or Musgrave, or some other good judge commended the work. Yet I consider it a very difficult question in conscience, whether one should advise a man not to publish a work, a profit be his object. For the man may say, Had it not been for you, I should have had the money. Now you cannot be sure, for you have only your own opinion, and the public may think very differently. Sir Joshua Reynolds, you must upon such an occasion have two judgments, one as to the real value of the work, the other as to what may please the general taste at the time. Johnson but you can be sure of neither and therefore i should scruple much to give a suppressive vote both goldsmith's comedies were once refused his first by garrick his second by coleman who was prevailed on at last by much solicitation nay a kind of force to bring it on footnote garrick insisted on great alterations being made in the good-natured man when goldsmith resisted this he proposed a sort of arbitration, and named, as his arbitrator Whitehead, the laureate. It was of Whitehead's poetry that Johnson said, Grand nonsense is insupportable. The good-natured man was brought out by Coleman, as well as She Stoops to Conquer. End of footnote. His vicar of Wakefield, I myself did not think, would have had much success. It was written and sold to a bookseller before his traveller, but published after. So little expectation had the bookseller from it. Had it been sold after the traveller, he might have had twice as much money for it, though sixty guineas was no mean price. The bookseller had the advantage of goldsmith's reputation from the traveller in the sale, though goldsmith had it not in selling the copy, Sir Joshua Reynolds. The Beggar's opera affords a proof how strangely people will differ in opinion about a literary performance, Burke thinks it has no merit. Johnson. It was refused by one of the houses, but I should have thought it would succeed, not from any great excellence in the writing, but from the novelty and the general spirit and gaiety of the piece which keeps the audience always attentive and dismisses them in good humor. Footnote. This play, written in ridicule of the musical Italian drama, was first offered to Sibber and his brethren at Drury Lane, and rejected. It being then carried to Rich had the effect, as was ludicrously said, of making gay rich and rich gay. End of footnote. End of section 34.